Amen. Let us pray again. O oh Lord, as you send us, we do pray that we will answer the call. That unlike Jonah, we don't find ourselves fleeing from your call over our lives. Whatever shape, whatever specifics may be. Help us, Lord, to answer your call, specifically tonight, Lord. Guide our thoughts, guide my meditation, guide the preaching of your word, Lord, so that we may see and behold your truth. And that, Lord, we will be brought, even as believers, Lord, to a greater understanding of the importance of answering your call in our lives. We pray you this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Friend, do not let God force you to obey. I'm talking to you as a true sheep of the Lord. You have to realize that even believers can stubbornly disobey the Lord and pay dire consequences for that. And that is what we see here in our story. It is uh, the nature of sheep to stray and get in harm's way, whether from literal sheep from hungry wolves or steep canyons for centuries shepherds have used various methods to get them back whether using staff or using a dog to keep the sheep from straying from the from the safety of their care and in recent times shepherds have tried more sophisticated methods one thing they use is a metal hoof proof grid I hope I spell it right, that is built into the ground around the territory of the sheep. And the animals cannot walk over the grid, which is eight feet wide, okay? And this works well in keeping sheep in the protection of the pen. However, the shepherds of Yorkshire in 2006 in England, they found that their sheep were not only stubbornly prone to stray, but they were also crafty. I was talking with some of you that told me about uh, cows finding a way out of their fences. That's very much like that. One of the sheep laid down and rolled over the grid. The other sheep in the herd followed the first, and soon the entire flock has spread over the countryside to neighbors' gardens where they ate the food and flowers of local residents. And the shepherds eventually gathered up the troublesome sheep, the wandering sheep, and returned them to their pen. But they escaped again. And got into trouble. While the escape of this flock of the black sheep may have seemed like an exciting adventure. It actually placed the animals in harm's way from cars and unfriendly dogs. So tonight we want to look at God's calling over our lives. We are that sheep sometimes wondering. And we, we're going to look today at the cost of disobedience for believers. Thankfully our good shepherd... As we know, has found uh, another way to deal with stubborn, strange sheep like us. Isaiah 53, I was meditating in my quiet time in the morning. I'm going through Isaiah. says, in verse 6, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of one of us has turned to his own way. However, the hope there is that the good shepherd comes and the Lord, the text continues, has laid on Jesus, the good shepherd, the iniquity of us all. 
So we begin this small journey through the book of Jonah. We want to begin today with chapter 1. And chapter 1 shows us the disobedience of Jonah. Jonah is a very special book. It's unlike any prophetic books. We, we go back to the prophets. We, we look through Agai. Now we come to this other book of the minor prophets, which is short, and yet is very instructive as a story. Uh, I know my, my daughter loves the story of Jonah a lot. However, it's more than an entertaining moral story or a parable. Uh, what is significant that is, is within the prophetic books, okay? However, this book doesn't recollect the, the, the oracles, the prophecies that you find in, 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 in the Minor Prophets. No, this entire story is about the prophets. The story surrounding the call of the prophet to preach. Which means... This book has a didactic and teaching purpose. It is intended to actually teach the entire community of Israel a lesson, entire community of God's people a lesson through Jonah. That uh, they in, in many ways are Jonah. And they, like Jonah, are showing something that God has to address here through this book. Jonah is one of the few prophets that comes from the northern kingdom of Israel. If you know your Old Testament history, you know that God was wearied with the continuous and obstinate rejection of the northern tribes. Their entire history started with Jeroboam wanting to build the golden calves and keep people from going to, to the southern kingdom of Judah. So it was an apostate kingdom from the beginning. And God was, again, wearied of the rejection of God among the northern kingdom. The rejection toward the prophets that called them, Elijah and Elisha, had called the northern kingdom to repent. And soon, sadly, Assyria will deport them to exile. And Nineveh, the city that we see here in chapter 1, is, mind you, the capital city of the enemy of these northern tribes. And God is calling the prophet. I mean, often the northern tribes of Israel had faced the cruel violence from the Ninevites. The kings of Assyria was among the most cruel that you can ever imagine. This is why the salvation of the Ninevites is not in the raider of Jonah. Okay? It is not. Let alone the entire northern tribes. In other words, they deserve to be punished. They deserve to be destroyed for their wickedness. So Jonah thinks. So Israel thinks. Very different attitude than what we saw in the Sunday school this morning. Of We talk about Abraham and Sodom and his intercession for Sodom. And yet, there is one aspect of this story that is striking. And it's strikingly so that the entire, we'll see in coming weeks, the entire Nineveh repents. Turns away from their sin. Unthinkable. But you see... The point is, they repented, and the Israel northern kingdom doesn't. Israel, that they claim to follow the living God, doesn't repent, even though they're supposedly the people of God, and God sends them the prophets over and over again, calling them away from idolatry. And this pagan city, Nineveh, the enemies of God, repents at the preaching of Jonah. We must keep in mind that while Nineveh was spared in our story, 
later it will be destroyed. Another minor prophets, Nahum chapter 2 verse 8 tells us that Nineveh, after going back to their sin, was ultimately destroyed. Yet there's still hope for repentance here. And these people are not Jewish people. They are outside the covenant community. So the instant docility, the instant repentance of this pagan people is intended for Israel to be a lesson. That Israel is in stubborn, unrepentance, idolatry. It makes all of that inexcusable. So chapter 1 for us today is a miniature of everything that we will see in coming weeks in Nineveh. Jonah has this anti-missionary spirit. He doesn't want God to extend His grace on those who are not part of the Jewish people. A struggle that Jews display all the way to the New Testament, by the way. All the way to us. I am assured there's no Jewish people around in this room. And yet we benefit from the God of Israel. We enter into the true people of God by faith. So Jonah tries to what? To run away from God. To rebel. To undermine the resolve of God to send him to Nineveh. (laughs) However, in our text, no matter how hard he tries, he cannot escape God's presence. He cannot escape his calling. Later... Next Sunday evening, Lord willing, we will look at chapter 2 where he now prays and he recites a passage that in the future I would love to do a sermon on. It's Psalms 18, verse 3 to 6. Let's go there a second. Psalm 18. This was the passage that actually brought me to the Lord. And uh, it says here, and it's recited by, by Jonah. Verse 3 says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so that I shall be saved from my enemies. The pangs of death surrounded me, and the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of shield surrounded me, the snare of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from His temple, and my cry came before Him, even to His ears. And then it continues to verse 15 and 16. Point being, He prays and He he turns back from his stubborn unwillingness to go to Nineveh. I mean, who would pray such pray when you're facing a certain death by an accident? And then in chapter 3, God repeats the command. He says, go to Nineveh. And this time, Jonah obeys. And he delivers the shortest sermon ever to heathen Ninevites. It's only three or four words, okay? And yet, he witnessed the greatest revival ever Recorded in scripture, 120,000 people. I mean, you even have cattles who put on sackcloth. That's how meticulous the people of Nineveh wanted to repent. Unlike, as I I said, unlike northern kingdom of Israel, which got at this time Jezebel. It's got at this time all sort of hypocritical and nominal devotion to God. And then we'll lead... To the ending of the story in chapter 4. Where there's this root of bitterness in Jonah. That is still still hanging on. He, he's still unhappy. That Nineveh got spared. And God sends this uh, uh, tree. To show the merciful heart of God. But what do we make of this first chapter? That Jonah disobeys. Okay. He flees from God. 
He flees from the calling of God over his life. And the consequence of his disobedience is it's a catastrophe. And in that catastrophe, he discovers something. He discovers that ultimately there's no way for the true believer to flee from God's will. There's no way. That one way or the other, God will make you obey Him. If you are a true believer. This happened not necessarily when you first come to Christ. I think God has mercy on us when we are still in our immaturity. But when we have been a believer for a while... And in some way, we should now begin to know better. He has to put a shoulder on the wall like it happens here. And he sanctifies us from any form of rebellion that is remaining. All the way to the end. All the way to glory. Whether we like it or not. Even if it leads us to lose everything in the process. Until we finally say, okay, Lord. I will obey now. Ever had to come to face to face with such thing in your Christian life? I, I know I had. I think when I was tempted to become a Presbyterian, but I could not stomach sprinkling babies. So God almost forced me to quit that process and brought me back down under the waters, just like in this text, of what it means to actually be an adult, regenerated, baptized believer. And that's where, by the way, I met my wife. So let this be a lesson for you. That before God has to sink you all the way down until you finally obey Him, that you don't flee. The key word of our text is the presence of the Lord. Three times he was trying to flee the presence of the Lord. We know from Psalm 139 that God's presence is unescapable. So let's look together at the nature of Jonah's disobedience here in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And this is why... Did Jonah disobeys? We'll learn from chapter one, 4 the full story, obviously, of his disobedience. But for now, we see that the unrepentant Jonah refuses to call Nineveh to repent. That was the calling. The word of Yahweh came to Jonah, verse 1, which is a prophetic formula we find throughout the prophets. And there's two words there, arise and go, which in Hebrew have a certain urgency. This is a matter of some urgency. God is commanding Jonah to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh right there, it's an unusual and unprecedented for any Old Testament prophet to be commanded by God to go to a pagan city. You don't find that. Let alone, this is not just a pagan city, this is the enemy of Israel. It's, it's a town that had a reputation for terrorism, slaughters, continuous slaughters against people of God... It's a challenging task indeed to go to the enemy and threaten destruction to them. It's like God calling you now to go to Iraq to preach to ISIS and to the Taliban. And I know tomorrow we celebrate the 22, 23 years from the, the September 11 attack. But imagine if God calls you to go there and, and to preach them that they need to repent. That is the unthinkable for, for, for Jonah right there, okay? But God says in verse 2 that Nineveh is a great city. Chapter 3 describes a great city to God. In other words, Jonah's story teaches us that great cities which, with many souls, just like we saw in Sunday school, are important in the eyes of God. That there's, there's a desire in God in Ezekiel 18, 23 says, uh, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? And not rather than he should turn from his evil way and live. 
And that is the thing that Jonah doesn't want to submit to. But here God says, Their evil has come to my face. The Ninevites were known for cruel punishments, infamous violence. And they were so degenerated that God's patience is over. And notice they are not claiming to be believing the God of Israel. But God is still concerned that they turn from their sin. That their sin is a spit on the face of the Creator God, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, Jonah has to go and preach to them their sin. Tell them that they will die if they don't repent. And the question for us is, would you go if God calls you to do something that doesn't make sense to you? Something that goes against, something that you don't want to do. And we know from future chapters, what was the reason Jonah didn't want to go? It's because he felt that these people were wicked. These people were worthy of judgment, which I'm sure is the case. However, Jonah doesn't have God's concern and love for the lost. And that is the nature of his problem. Friend, you might have all the excuse and justification in the world, but if God and his word says something to you, and you do what you think is best, but it, it doesn't coincide with what God says, that is disobedience. And disobedience is still a problem for the believer. And that's what Jonah does, verse 3. In direct contrast to the underlined, the, the disobedience, Jonah, Jonah here says, But Jonah fled. Not only he disobeys, he runs away. And where does he go? He goes to Tarshish, which is uh, it's south of Spain, okay? It's west. The farthest point imaginable to going actually east toward Nineveh, where God had told him to go. It's almost saying, bye-bye, God, I'm going to Timbuktu. The opposite, the exact opposite direction. You know that southern Spain there, Gibraltar, today, it was the end of the world known at the time. They thought, they didn't know there was an America. They, they thought it was the end there. But it's an absurd choice for Jonah. A doubly mad determination. He takes this one-way ticket, expensive, to nowhere. Plus, he's a Jew, okay? Jewish people don't like the water. They, all throughout scripture, they speak about it as something. He doesn't know how to swim. And he goes to Joppa. That is a significant detail right there. And he finds this ship. It's almost like a, the movie Fugitive. He's going out and he's trying to get out of the way. But again, Joppa does ring a bell to us. If you know the town Joppa in the New Testament, that's the town where you have Peter. Who is... Uh, son of another Jonah, in that same town of Joppa, years later, he's a doubtful servant of the Lord. He talks to God and he says, God, there's no way that I will eat unclean food. There's no way I'll go to a pagan's house, Cornelius. I'm not going to do that. He's a Roman. A Roman soldier. There's no way he can become a true believer of the God of Israel, right? He's part of our enemies who enslaved us. But God forces Peter through a vision there in Joppa to realize that the Gentiles, that not just the Jewish people, are to be included in the gospel. The gospel needs to go to all nations. No, inst instead, just like Peter reticence, Jonah here flees from the presence of the Lord as if that was even possible. 
That word free from the presence of the Lord is here in verse 3, in verse 10, from the face of Yahweh. Perhaps referring to, as we know in chapter 2 next time, the temple in Jerusalem. He's, he's praying about the holy temple. But the paradox, obviously, is, is that it is impossible to flee from the presence of God. So what does he do? He hides. He's just, just like Adam. He hides because he has a dirty conscience. He knows that he's refusing to serve the Lord. And hopefully, in his vanity of brain, he thinks that the Lord will forget. God will forget me or find someone else to, to do this job. He goes away from the will of God, yet he will discover that God's presence and God's will is unescapable. And the, to just to cover that gap on the why, chapter 4 says, For I knew, I knew that you were a merciful God and you are going to spare them, God. In other words, the reason is he wants them to be punished. They deserve this. But he knows that God is merciful. And so he doesn't want any chance that they may actually be spared. That's how proud Jewish people had become by this time toward unbelievers. And so he went down to this ship. That word down is crucial. It's repeated throughout here. Down to Joppa, down to the port, down to the deck, down to, the, to sleep, down to the waters, down to the bottom of the abyss, down to the belly of a fish. It's going to be a descent for us this evening. Sin is always a descending in darker and deeper places away from the center of God's will. Jonah gave its wage there, a wage of sin, we could call it, and he, he goes. See how sin is separation from God. He wants to flee the presence of God those, through sin, but he fools himself. It is very, very sad when God tells a believer to do something in His Word and the believer ignores it, does the exact opposite of what the Bible says, deliberately disobeys God and His command in His Word as a believer to the point that the conscience is not even bothered anymore. It is a sad possibility even for the believer. However, God doesn't leave a true believer in that condition. Sooner or later, he will chastise us. And it, as if we know what is best rather than what God tells us. In this case, Jonah has idolatrously placed himself in the place of God. He wants his way. He wants them to perish. And so he takes his wings and goes away. But notice what makes this, this disobedience more problematic. That this is not just an unbeliever, okay? This is... Not just a, a regular believer. This is the prophet of God. Whom you would expect this. Obviously is natural in an unbeliever. But this is a believer. God's word came to him. God's command. And he deliberately disobeys. Thinking he'll get away with it. But he cannot get away from it. Not so with God. He chastises all of us. His true children. And also just like a father, he does so until the true believer finally repents and he is restored. Because look what happened next in the second point of our text. That with disobedience come immediate consequences. Here's the consequence of Jonah's disobedience. Verse 4 to 10. Here's the what of his disobedience. That wrath comes on account of this sleeper Jonah who is running from God. 
Yeah, we have another contrast in verse 4. This time from the Lord. The Lord is not by chance. The purpose of God blows. God blows a great wind, a mighty tempest, a storm. The sky gets black and no matter where they turned, this is not an ordinary rain. This is like an ocean of, of wrath, okay, to the point that smashes the boat. I was uh, reminded when I was in Michigan, there was this uh, wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, okay? This boat was completely shipwrecked as a bone to be chewed by the gales. And the tension grows in verse 5. The sailors now fear for their lives. They, they start to cry to each to their God, and they're all pagan, okay? I think about my aunt, who is a Catholic. Uh, she's Catholic, and... She says when the storm came, she started to pray the Virgin Mary and all sort of things. So everyone calls their God. And these are Phoenicians people. They manage most of the traffic in the Mediterranean. They're going to Tarshish. And, and they're expert sailors. Yet they cannot appease this storm. That this judgment has come to, to, to everyone. And, and they are crying out to their God. And we learn from the prophets that these ships of Tarsus, Ezekiel 27 tells us in verse 25, of a situation like this, where the rowers have brought thee into great waters. The east wind has broken thee in the midst of the seas. Thy riches, thy merchandise, thy mariners, thy pilots shall fall into the midst of the seas in the day of thy ruin. They were expert sailors. And here... They cast their equipments. They see that death is approaching. And it's just like in Acts of the Apostle, chapter 27, Paul is in this storm and, and they are lowering the cargo. They think that their life is gone. But where is Jonah in all of this? That's the question. Where is Jonah in all this lightning, waves and heavy rain? Again, he went down. Down and down he goes. It's going to be a very way down until finally he embraces God's will. To come back up. So he's in the innermost part of the ship. Just like he will later go into the innermost part of the sea. In the belly of a fish. The storm is approaching. He's hiding in the bottom of the boat. So that he's not going to be found out. And he's asking himself. Is that going to be enough to hide myself from God's presence? No. God will bring Jonah even more down than that. Not only that. But Jonah laid down and slept. He's having a nap. It comes when you're living in sin and you cannot but feel uncomfortable in, 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 even in your prayers. Your conscience bothers us. He's just wanting a way out of the mess he has created that he has caused. So he goes and falls asleep. In contrast, to, notice to our text, the sailors who are praying, even though they're praying to their false gods and the wrong gods, Jonah, the prophet of God, is indifferent to the life's dangers of others that he has caused by his own sin. He's like Peter who sleeps on Gethsemane while the Savior is about to be arrested. Who had said, may he never be, and then, and then he sleeps. The good news for us, however, there's, there's one greater than Jonah who obeyed where Jonah didn't. Jesus Christ came willingly to preach repentance. He gave his life. Yes, he slept during the storm, yet by faith he calmed it in an instant. So he himself 
goes down at the cross and he takes on his shoulders the waves of the wrath of God for your sin, for your disobedience, for your stubborn rebellion. He did not flee. Whether it's Gethsemane, whether it's the temple, whether it's Calvary, whether it's Caesar's palace. So what we learn here is first of all that God is everywhere. You cannot escape Him. He's powerful. He's sovereign. You cannot, it would be foolish to even try to think to go against Him as a believer. This story for us is a perfect picture, by the way, of our will have no saying in salvation. That there's such a thing as the, the, the irresistible grace of God. That uh, God's grace works effectively to convert you as an unbeliever. And even in your stubborn rebellion, to drag you to himself. And I venture to say here, it's almost the coercion of Jonah. We must therefore give up to the fact that his grace is irresistible. That you, he draws you back to himself, even with violent means like here. Even a heaven taken by storms, he forces you into his will. Even if it goes against your will. In fact, there is no free will. But secondly, notice how the, the disobedience of a believer is a tremendous and tragic consequences in our lives. There's no, well, God will forgive me. I'm fine with this. You don't see that in these stories. In fact, you see how dramatic are the effects of sin precisely in the believer's life. That you put yourself and those around you in a dangerous spot. I mean, how many marriages have shipwrecked because of this disobedience? How many families experience brokenness because of disobedience? And the consequences of sin are lasting. Friends, this should lead us to, even as believers, to never tempt the Lord or to put His patience with us to the test by this stubborn rebellion. But verse 6 tells us that the situation is so severe that now the captain of the ship comes down and finds, what does he find? Jonah sleeping there on the bottom of the ship. And he rebukes you and he says, what is it with you? Literally in Hebrew. What are you doing here? I mean, get up. And friends, beyond the, the captain, there's a greater captain here that is at work. Who had told him, preach. Who had told him, fulfill your duty. Reminds me of John Calvin when he wanted, he was in Geneva, just on the stay. He wanted to go back to another town, Strasbourg. Geneva has such a bad reputation. He wanted to leave, but then he, meet, he meets this William Farrell who had started the Reformation there in Geneva. And he sends a dreadful curse to, to John Calvin if he doesn't stop and stay in Geneva to uh, do the work of Reformation. So here the, in our text, the irony is that you have a pagan, this sailor captain, who is exhorting an Israelite, and not just an Israelite, I prophet... To call on the true God in prayer. That's how far his backsliding has gone here. He's sleeping. And he says, perhaps your God will think upon us. Which is almost a sign of what's about to happen here. There's a small, tiny revival in this ship to come. That the Holy Spirit is starting to move the heart of this pagan commander. Just like it was starting to move in the heart of Cornelius when Peter brought him the gospel. That... He said to Peter, we are all here to hear everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Acts 10 verse 33. So tell us what, you, what, what to do so that we may not perish. And verse 7, 
they don't stop there. They start to cast lots. The situation is so tragic and they want to know who's, who's guilty here. Let's cast lots. Who is to blame? And who is to blame? Not the pirates, not the thief, not the rude godless sailors, but none other than the prophet of God. The lot fell on Jonah. And so all eyes now are turning to Jonah and they're waiting him to explain himself. Sinning believer, know this. Your sin will find you out. Yes, you can hide all you want. You can run away from your problems only to find yourself in worse trouble. Friends, you cannot claim to follow God and run away from Him at the same time without either seeing your life fall apart or you repent. You can go even in this most secret closet, but you cannot hide from God and the lot of His providence will reach you even there. So what's the point in hiding from God? Give up. Confess your sin. Instead, like Jonah, it goes down and down. Verse 8, what people are you of? They're trying to find out who is Jonah. Anything, his occupation, his nationality, his religion. So we may find out the reason why this storm is now upon us. And verse 9 tells us, here's the first speech of Jonah. He says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord." first question you want to ask yourself is that really genuine fear of God that was that brought you to such a disobedience it literally is, is more like saying I'm afraid of the God of heaven right now and I'm, a, I'm running away from him that's why he's fleeing and who is this God imagine the pagan mindset of the sailors well by the way this God is the one who made the sea uh oh this God is beyond the wrathful sea that is raging before our eyes. And you offended the God of the sea. And now you have a moment of silence in verse 10. And the sailors become exceedingly afraid. Terrorized. I mean, imagine they look, they're in trouble without knowing they have offended the God of the seas. Obviously, they have a pagan mindset here. And, and they're saying, what is this you have done? Are you crazy? You offend the God who made the sea? And they knew, by the way, Jonah told them in a conversation, I am fleeing from the presence of the Lord. I mean, what bold defiance to represent the God of Israel before unbelievers in such cowardice. Sometimes God, through people, can hit us with stoner questions like this. What have you done? And you have to do this confession. You have to confess your sin to men and to God. You have to admit the painful reality of betrayal of your calling as a Christian. And friends, God might have to strip you of everything until you declare, I am guilty. That I was running away from God. And that I have done wrong. And that I'm, ca I'm causing danger to people around me. However, there's no easy end for Jonah, okay? There's an unescapable going even further. Here's the way out of Jonah's disobedience. Verse 11 to 17. Here's the how to our story. The, the wrath can be appeased only through the transgressor being punished for the salvation of pagans. These, these sailors are all pagans and they can be saved only as the, Jonah needs to be thrown overboard. Verse 11. The confession of sin, you would have thought, okay, I confessed my sin, now the this, this, this storm will stop. No. You see, lip service is not enough. Now we have to take consequence of our sin here. Because he has put, his disobedience, Jonah's disobedience has put other lives in danger. 
And so the, the sailors ask, what should we do to you? I mean, a military deserter is worthy of death. How can we be saved from the wrath of this God in this ocean that will smash our boat into pieces? How can we quiet this ocean of the wrath of God? The sea was tempestuous. Our, our test says raging more and more. The situation is precipitating, okay? No matter what we do. And verse 12 tells us the only way out. Jonah tells him, you have to take me. You have to throw me to the sea. I have to be like that scapegoat to offer my life in exchange for yours. Which all this points us again. The salvation, the, the, the whole theme of this letter, this uh, entire story of Jonah. Gentiles are coming to salvation. The Israel is disobedience and through their stumbling salvation comes to the gentiles that there's one greater than jonah that went to calvary and he offered his life willingly for the salvation of us who are non-jewish people who don't belong to the people of god by nature jonah says i know it is for my sake that this is happening which it's a final surrender of the believer he confesses fat fatal sin he says, I am the one you are looking for. This is, shows us how we should be open and honest about our sin. To just admit what, 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 have, what, what we have done. To be honest about it. That's what God wants. Whatever we have uh, exposed ourselves to dangers by walking outside the revealed will of God in this scripture. Confess it. And while honesty is not a guarantee that Jonah will truly repented because... He still has bitterness all the way to the end of the story. He's still reluctant to the end of chapter 4. At least this is a first step. So don't try to cover up your sin. Don't blame others or society for your sin. Don't rationalize it. Get rid of it. Because the longer you wait to confess it, the longer you wait to turn away from it, the worse it gets. Here's the dilemma of verse 13. If they throw him, they have blood on their hands. If they keep him, the ocean will swallow the boat. Makes me think about Moby Dick and a situation of despair here. Their first human reaction is, okay, we try to return to the coast. Let's try to, to, to find our solution here. They're trying with their human instrument to spare his life, but they were not able. They had no power against this storm and... They were trying to save him, but there's no way out, you see. God's will has to come through this offering of Jonah. Verse 14. So they cry to Yahweh. Here you have pagans. Here you have the revival. The small, tiny revival in the sheep of the pagans that later in chapter 3 gets into an entire city. It's already there. They cried out to Yahweh. You see, when all human devices are gone, you turn to the Lord in prayer. And it becomes a real prayer. And it says, please, O Lord, let us not perish on account of the life of this man. Do not lay upon us the innocent blood. For you are Yahweh, as you have desired, you have done. Which is a marvelous confession from these pagan sailors. They understand restitutional justice. They understand that he is, that God is Yahweh, that is the Lord. This is more than personal appreciation. They are confessing that God is the real God and, and that everything, the tempest, the lot, the casting of lot, the sentence, all this is a work of God's providence. And so they submit to the sovereignty of God in the judgment 
but also with the grace that comes out of that judgment through their salvation and ultimately Jonah's final comeback. This is the theme of the book. But friends, does this describe you and me? How often we fall in sin and try on our own to fix it. I mean, that is our natural, selfish, carnal way to deal with a problem. We, we make fleshly efforts to awaken ourselves as sinners, but those fleshy efforts do not work. Works cannot save us. In the case you end up surrounded by more obstacles, no matter what you do, you are fighting against God. And it is clear from the start who will win, isn't it? The only way out is to plead the sacrifice of another on your behalf. Who indeed paid the wrath of God for your sin. Who indeed went to the waves of God's judgment. And that's what they do in verse 15. If they pick up Jonah, they cast him overboard. That is the, 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 the final submersion that reminds us of the waves of God's wrath. That Christ had to drink the cup of God's wrath. The, the spear of, his, of the sin piercing the side of the Savior. So let, let that water from the river side which flowed be of sin. The double cure save you from this guilt and power. That yes, Jesus Christ took the judgment. And he went down to the abyss. That God's presence fled at the cross. But suddenly, here's the back to our story. The sea stood from its raging. Complete peace. The sweet peace when the ocean of the wrath is satisfied. No more restless storms. And verse 16, what happens next? The pagan sailors look around to the calm sea as Jonah is submerged. And they fear the Lord exceedingly. They're coming to faith in great fear. They fear Yahweh with great fear. They fear, yes, for their lives turning to awe now. And worship of the God, the only true God. And this is no longer a superstitious, superstitious superficial belief that by the death of someone, Gentiles can come to faith. And they sacrifice the sacrifice. They vowed vows. They throw their idols into the sea. They realize how powerless they are. They return to Joppa. They perhaps wanted to go to Jerusalem. They become proselytes. They offer sacrifices of thanksgiving to the God of Israel. And friends, foreigners are not even the primary target. These people on the ship were not the primary target. The primary target was Nineveh. But on the process, God is teaching Jonah that... Salvation comes to the nations. They are converted. They're actually more righteous. They appear more righteous than the Hebrew Jonah. Why? Because they're sensitive to offending God, where Jonah is completely not. And despite the reluctant, the complete reluctant failure of Jonah, God's awakening is still at work. It's already at work. Chapter 3. This great city is like going to New York City. And you see, preach three words and, and the entire town repents and come to saving faith. Would you look at that? That God can use even disobedience from His servants to communicate a message of salvation and hope to those who are woefully lost in sin. Now, this is not justification for any of us as a later we can use our sinful behavior to teach us something or even bring others to Christ. 
We're still humanly responsible for our behavior. And the, the catastrophe here is clear. Yet God, while not being the author of that evil, can use and direct things that sinful human people do, like Jonah, for a greater and good purpose. And that greater purpose that Jonah doesn't realize is that these souls of these people in the boat will come to Christ. And verse 17, which opens now the, the, the next chapter we'll see next uh, Sunday night. The Lord prepares. This is another word again. Second time. He prepared the wind. Now He prepared and appoints or predetermined. Again, there's no accidents in this story. The great fish. That nowhere it says this was a whale. But it is definitely greater than a sturgeon fish or any of the like. I know that some deny scriptures on this verse because how can, how can a Jonah be swallowed by, by a fish? But the mighty deliverance that foreshadows here, it's actually foreshadowing for us the resurrection. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man. So Christ refers to these events as historical, first of all. But also, secondly, this is a miracle. So if you don't believe this, you don't believe the greater miracle of the resurrection that you therefore are done with Christianity altogether. But I'll make mention to this next time, but it is actually, there are fishes like that that can actually swallow human beings. And he stays there, our text says, three days and three nights. He has to die. He has to die to his own will. He has to bury the old man. He has to head to shield to the bottom, the ultimate way down. Christ later will use these words in Matthew 12, 39 says, No sign will be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. That dead, that Jonah that looked like dead in the mind of the Savior at this point. Just like Christ looked dead for the disciples after the cross. On the third day, is indeed delivered. He comes back to life and draws us, draws all the nations to Himself through His resurrection. And this is pointing out how Christ took our place indeed. See, me and you should have been the one going down to the deep waters of judgment at the cross. And that ultimately is the place where God appeased the wrath of God through the sacrifice, the better sacrifice of Christ. And now you can enjoy the calm shores of assurance. Now you come out of the belly of your new birth. And you now live as living sacrifices now. In thanksgiving. Today conversions can happen despite our shortcomings. Revivals can come despite our anti-missionary spirit. Just like Jonah had. And no, matter, no wonder many today want to deny this sign of the three days in the belly of the fish. Because of their unbelief. Yet, like Jonah, Christ went to the heart of the earth. And He came back to life, conquering death. So what do we, what do we make of this first chapter of Jonah? Jonah obviously shows us the heart of God for the lost. And sadly, that even those who we despise, those who we think, you know, they're not worthy of, God actually shows His heart. That he's concerned for their sin. And uh, he, he's calling for someone to preach repentance to them. He's calling for us to obey. And that obedience is not an option. 
It calls us to realize that we are called to be a witness. Richard Baxter, a Puritan, says this, It is no safe course to imitate Jonah. In turning our back upon the commands of God, if we neglect our work, he hath a spur to quicken us. If we run away from it, he has messengers enough to overtake us and bring us back and make us do it. And it is better to do it at first than at last. Don't let fear or pride or wrong assumption